I've been in a series on healing a divided heart taken from Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says their heart is divided. And I'm talking about the fact that we're made of flesh. I've stressed over and over and over again in this series, and I hope it's been communicated in this manner, that, that God still believes in you. Even if you have made a mistake and messed up in your life, I want you to know that God believes in you and loves you. I have not wanted to preach this message. I've been in, in churches where messages such as what I'm preaching now have been preached and you felt so condemned. You want to crawl under the altar and you know and hide even if you hadn't done anything. I one time had a friend, uh, Dr. Fred Foster, big tall guy, and uh, they used to have huge pulpits back in the day and wooden pulpits. He preached his trial sermon, his first sermon. He did so bad, so bad. He pastored a great church. He, he became a great preacher. But his first sermon was so bad that he was humiliated. And he had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. And I mean everybody, close your eyes, close your eyes. And there was, was a door on the pulpit, and he opened it and got inside and closed it. And everybody looked around and he was gone. He waited till the last person had left before he came out. That's a true story. Amen. Well, I've been in churches where people have preached messages about what I'm discussing right now. And I felt like doing that very thing. I wanted to hide. Even if I hadn't done anything wrong. What I've tried in this series to communicate is the grace and the love of God. It's the enemy that wants you to believe that you've messed up so much that your life will never matter again. And that is absolutely a lie straight from the pit of fail. Every individual is of inestimable worth and God loves you. And I also want to emphasize this, that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, Romans 11 and 29. But the Amplified says it like this, put that up there. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. He never withdraws them when once they are given, and he does not change his mind about those to whom he gives his grace or to whom he sends his call. Amen. You can damage your effectiveness by not being careful with your life, but I want you to know God still wants to use you. The simple truth of the matter is that God has used a lot of people in the Bible that failed and he used them after their mistake and their failure. You can overcome. That's what I'm trying to get across. You can overcome. It's like being sick though. Until you acknowledge that you're sick, you're not going to get any better. Now some sicknesses will heal themselves. You know what they say about a common cold, right? That if you treat it, it'll go away in seven days. But if you don't, it's going to last a whole week. Right? There are some sicknesses that go away on their own. But if you get a serious one, like Linda Miller, for example, had this brain tumor with this big old long name, same one that Senator John McCain has right now. And uh, she just celebrated 15 months being totally cancer-free. And that kind of cancer is almost an absolute death sentence. And it was as big as a large lemon when they removed it. 
but God has helped her completely recover from that. We first have to look at the problem before and acknowledge that we can have problems before we will ever be able to know what to do to correct them. And I want to tell you that if you've spent your life struggling with weaknesses, you can live strong. And that is the title of my message today, Live Strong. Father, would you speak to us right now and let your word impact our hearts for good and for God. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Ephesians 6, finally, my brethren. Everybody say it. Be strong. In the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, are predicated upon what he has just told us, he feels compelled to urge us to take this next step. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I don't like to give the devil any praise or credit in any way, but I'm going to tell you that most believers do not realize how organized the spiritual hierarchies of an area are. The demonic kingdom is highly organized in terms of the refinement of its organizational structure. You have to remember that Satan came from heaven where there is perfect order, perfect order, perfect government. That was what he saw every single, we would use the word day, but day doesn't really apply there, does it? Because it's in eternity. But for however long, endless ages of eternity, that was what he was able to see as the proper methodologies for organizational leadership. He himself was in control of the worshipers. He was the worship leader of of heaven. When he failed to earth after his rebellion, and I'll teach you a little bit more about that when I do talk about worship before much longer, that he took with him his insight into organizational dynamics. Many readers of the Bible do not realize that when Paul is talking in this place in Ephesians, specifically in verse 12, and in Ephesians chapter 6, that he's actually describing four distinct levels of spiritual darkness that are in control of this fallen world. There's a spiritual hierarchy over every city and region in our world that controls the spiritual atmosphere of that area. And while temptation is found everywhere, you can go to a desert island by yourself and you're going to still be tempted, if nowhere else in your mind. There are some spirits that you struggle with more in some areas geographically than you might would struggle with in another area geographically. Our daily warfare is affected by the particular spirits that are in charge of the regions or areas in which we live. And the phrase that Paul uses, the phrases that he uses when he talks about, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of the age, spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Most of us would read that and think that there's a certain redundancy there, that he's using descriptive language. It is not redundant at all. When you go to the Greek, you will discover that each one of those phrases has a a totally different Greek word, 
and different meaning. For example, principalities is the Greek word for magistrates. It would be like, for example, Joe Stevens down here at the courthouse. Just Joe Stevens doing a great job. He is in charge of this particular area. But he's not in charge of the whole city. Principalities or magistrates are actually under the authority of the powers that be of an area. And these powers that Paul mentions as the second phrase are a higher form of rulers that would be like the sovereign of a major city and its environs. The Greek word is literally potentates. And these potentates, in turn, that are over cities and regional areas, answer to yet a higher level of authority that are the rulers of a a large region, maybe a state. I don't know how it actually works out. Uh, Maybe a, a nation, in some cases, no doubt, a nation. The term ruler is a term that would signify a level of authority and leadership over an entire region. The Greek word is princes, and it is the same word in the, that is used in the Greek that is also the, used in the Hebrew in the story of Daniel where it says that King Darius had 120 princes that he set over the 120 provinces that made up his kingdom. And what you need to understand is each one of these these provinces formerly had actually been nations or nation states. And he defeated them. And now he set up his own administration and leadership there. These provinces, as I said, were comprised of nations and empires. Now, so what you have on the local level, in the immediate local level, is a magistrate over over that whole area and over therefore a number of magistrates you have a potentate and then over the potentate that rules a larger area and rules a number of potentates you actually have these princes but above them is the phrase spiritual wickedness in high places and it refers to the enemy himself and his immediate lieutenants who rule over and give order to the princes who in turn give it to the potentates who in turn administer control or judgment or direction to the magistrates. This all occurs in the spiritual dimension. Now, when we say that we're talking about spiritual wickedness in high places, that's a phrase for the heavenlies. When you pray, your prayers have to go through the second dimension to reach the third. There are three heavens. There is the physical heaven that is made up of the universe. We're not talking about that. And then there is the abode of God, which is the, 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 where God himself, the city of God, dwells. But between this world and the city of God is the spiritual heavens in which these rulers of wickedness administrate their leadership to their underlings. Countries and even areas of these countries are often uh, possessed with certain characteristics that are indicative of these unseen ruling spiritual presences. Some who don't understand the workings of the spirit world might call those things cultural distinctives. That's a word that is used a lot these days. Hear it a lot in uh, sociology, for example. Cultural distinctives. For example... In the book of Titus, Paul addresses Titus, who is in Crete, and he says the Cretans are known for their inability to be truthful. There are certain characteristics they can't tell the truth. And it's, you might call that a certain cultural distinctive. It's not. It's a result of the influence of a fallen spirit. Some regions of the world, no matter what's going on, will always be in conflict. They always are in conflict. 
And I, I think of some of the parts of Africa that I visit that have gone through such upheaval. Some other places in the world, uh, you go to certain areas of the former Soviet Union that have historically been places of conflict for years. Genocides have occurred. Those are all driven by spirits that are underlying the physical actions that take place. Amen. Uh, just this week, uh, LaJoy Matthews sent me a Houston Chronicle order, uh, article rather that said that in the Woodlands, which is one of the premier residential areas of our city where you would suppose that successful people live, that the rate of suicide has tripled in just the last little while. Tripled. Well, one of the things that affects our city is part of what I'm talking about. Steve and I talked about that the other day. Um, you might not even know this, but Houston is the number one city in the nation for sex trafficking right now. They bring in these young girls that are nothing more than slaves from Latin and South America, from Asia, from Africa. They hold their passports, they get them in here, and they force them into bondage and slavery. You might wonder what one of the spirits of our city is all about. Well, if you go back and look at its history, and it's good to do this, you will find that our city is named after General Sam Houston. And uh, General Houston, Sam Houston, is known for the defeat of General Santa Ana, the Mexican general, right there down the road, Deer Park area, where the San Jacinto Monument is presently uh, has been erected. And General Santa Ana was defeated, and Sam Houston won the independence of the uh, great republic of Texas. We still want to know if we're a republic or a state, amen. And, and that, that still is sometimes debated. But out of recognition for his accomplishment, uh, he was awarded the honor of being made the namesake of this city. What many people do not know is that there's a reason that Sam Houston defeated General Santa Ana. He defeated Santa Ana and his mighty, almost invincible Mexican army with his poorly equipped band of untrained frontiersmen who were also poorly armed because he had intel that at a certain time of the day, General Santa Ana retired to his quarters to meet with a prostitute and left instructions to his officers under no circumstances do you bother me when I'm in my quarters with this woman. And so General Sam Houston planned his attack to occur at the time he knew, you're not going to read this in history books, you've got to dig for it, but you'll find it, planned his attack for when Santa Ana was in his quarters with a prostitute. And the battle only lasted 18 minutes, look it up. His officers delayed going to tell him that what the firing was about was not a surprise attack, or, or not just a skirmish, but it was a surprise attack. And by the time they finally went in to tell him, you better get out here, it was already too late. His army had been defeated. And so the great Mexican general, Santa Ana, lost everything because of a spirit that got a hold of him. Amen. That is one of the spirits of this city. And as Steve and I talked, on the way to church this morning, you drove, drove by, God only knows how many massage parlors. It may have been embarrassing to have some of the stuff up on the platform that I had up for several weeks in a row. I didn't design those. 
But God knows every one of those things are exactly what we deal with in this city. I need a better amen than that. Drugs is a major problem here. One of our men, Kim Malonson, led the joint task force that made the largest drug bust in the history of our nation. Right here in Houston, Texas, we have surpassed Dade County for the volume of drugs that is pushed into this nation. Amen. Prescription addictions are a serious problem. Addictions of all types are at epidemic rates. All of this, suicide, divorce, driven by spirits that underlie this. And you might ask, what is an addiction? An addiction is when natural biological imperatives, like the need for food, sex, relaxation, or status, become prioritized to the point of destructiveness. The enemy and the world conspire to use your natural appetites to lure you into something that will entrap you. Make no mistake about it. He's not going to get you to do something you don't want to do. He's going to ask you to do what the flesh is desiring. Amen. Now, I believe in the grace of God and that it can keep you. I do. I believe in the the saving, keeping grace of God. Can I hear an amen? By grace, we are saved. And I want to tell you something else. It's by grace we stand. Amen. But I want to talk a little while to those who got in the flesh, who have blown it, who messed up. And last week I talked about Peter and Judas. They both betrayed Christ. The only difference is between the two that Judas only betrayed Christ once. Peter three times. Denied him three times. The other difference is that Judas went into such a funk and a depression that he couldn't recover and took his own life. Peter, fortunately, did not do that. The question is, how did Peter recover? A couple of weeks ago I preached about the woman taken in the act of adultery. Jesus said... Go and sin no more. That's what he told her. That's real easy to say. But if you're in the grip of an addiction, or you're in the middle of an affair, or you're doing some stuff you shouldn't do, it's kind of hard to just go and sin no more. And so how do you just get up, brush yourself off, and go and sin no more? How do you stop whatever it is you're struggling with? That's the premier question. How do you overcome that? Jesus told Peter several things that I believe are very important before his, before his failure that I think will help us, I'm going to say this, when we stumble, notice I didn't say if we stumble, I said when, because you're going to get cut off in traffic before you know it, you, there's this, you know what I'm talking about. Let's read Luke 22, 31. Remember these. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as sweet. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. There are eight lessons that we can learn from what Jesus told Peter as they relate to God and our failures that will help us recover. And so I want to tell you right up front, That the devil's a liar. You still have value. God loves you. This flesh is going to be flesh for as long as you live. And if you mess up, it's not the end of the world. You can live strong. Say that with me. Live strong. Say it again. Live strong. Eight truths that will help you get back on your feet. Number one, God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And he wants us to know that. 
I don't know what you get when you read the, those words, Simon, Simon. But to me, that is such a tender expression. Jesus is looking at Simon, and he could have been all angry and mad at him. You're getting ready to betray me, you low-down scallywag. <laughs> could, have, could have handled it like that. God knows many of us would have. But instead, he said, Simon, Simon. Number two, God isn't shocked by our failures. He told Peter in advance that he was going to be tempted and even that he was going to fail. Psalms 103, verse 14. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Listen, I want to tell you one of the secrets for my own life and my relationship with God. And it has been that I have I refuse to try to be strong in his presence. I'm not strong. I'm weak. I tell him every day, I can't make it today if you don't help me, Lord. I need thee every hour. I need you, God. I need you like, like the ocean needs water or it will run dry. I need you, God. There's an old song we used to sing. I can't even walk unless you're holding my hand. And every once in a while, I'm just telling that. I, I don't go into the presence of God talking about I'm all that. No, no, no. I have learned that when you have pride, it precedes a fall. And Peter was all proud. They may betray you, but I never will. Oh, yeah. Let's wait and see how that works out. Amen. Amen. Psalms 103.14, the message says he knows us inside and out. Yes, he does. Number three, Christ prays for us, and I've got to hurry. And guess what? Christ's prayers are always answered. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives. Say that with me. He always lives to make, say it, make intercession for them. You've got somebody praying for you. You've got somebody that is a living sacrifice that stands. And when the judgment, the righteous nature of God says they messed up, they must pay. Christ stands up and says they already have. Look at these nail prints in my hands. Look at these in my feet. Look at the wound in my side. I became their sacrifice. Amen. Number four, God believes we will make it. Did you know that? That God's already seen you win. You might be struggling right now, but God already knows how it's going to turn out. Oh yes, I'm going to say that again. You might be in the greatest fight of your life wondering if you're going to survive. I've got good news for you. God's already seen the last chapter of your life and you're going to make it. Somebody shout, I'm going to make it. Yes, you are. You're going to make it. You're coming through this. He told Peter he would fail. But he also said that Peter would return to him. Listen to this. This is what Jesus said. When you have returned to me. You're going to make it, Peter. You're in a rough patch right now. But you're going to come through this. 
And have you ever noticed that when we do mess up, we mess up with the same dumb things over and over again? Come on, help me out. It's not something new to Mar. It's the same thing you dealt with yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and the day before. And yeah, we mess up with the same stuff. Amen. But he knows we're going to be able to overcome. Number five, God shows us mercy when we have fallen. He does. He showed Peter mercy. As I've already mentioned, it would have been real easy for Jesus to say, I'm done with you. I'm finished. That's all. First time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. He didn't. He said, Peter, when you return, in other words, you're not only coming back, I'm going to accept you back. You see, you have to understand the heart of the Father. We, we get a glimpse into that when we see the story of David and Absalom. You remember that story in the Old Testament. Absalom tried to steal the kingdom for, from his father, chased his dad out of town. His dad's running for his life. He's now old, and, and Absalom is trying to steal the kingdom. Absalom goes a step beyond that to a level of depravity and wickedness that is just horrific. He literally pitches a tent on the top of the palace and takes David's wives and sexually assaults them in the, in the eyes of the entire nation. I mean, how much indignity can you do to your father? But David, the Bible said, was a man after God's own heart. And I look at David to see how he responded because it tells me something about God's response to me when I've done wrong. And this is what David says. In the decisive battle where it's going to be determined whether David lives or dies, gets his kingdom back or not, David turns to his general, Joab, and this is what he said. Deal for gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently. I can't wrap my mind around that. How can you say Deal gently with this boy who has just humiliated me. I'm talking to dads in this building. You've had your kids hurt you before. But can you wrap your mind around the level of depravity to which Absalom sank? And yet David is saying, I'm talking about pre-grace. I'm talking about pre-Holy Spirit encounter. I'm talking about Old Testament where the sword and judgment ruled and it was eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. And David reveals to us the heart of God and says, deal gently with that boy. Boy, that's not what a lot of folk would have done. And in that I hear the voice of God whisper to me. And I hear him whisper to all of us. Yeah, let's give the Lord a praise on that one. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. How measureless, how strong. Hallelujah. If it wasn't for the love of God, none of us would be here anyway. Hear what I'm talking about. You're not here because you're all that. God loved you right into his kingdom. Found you when you were lost. Rolled up his shirt sleeves. And went seeking for you. Number six. We see in this that God uses imperfect people to build his church. He actually reprocesses our failures to become testimonies of his grace and forgiveness that in turn can encourage others. Here you have two people who failed. Judas, he'll go into depression, commit suicide. You have Peter, 
who denied Christ three times, not once. Jesus just denied him one time. Amen. Betrayed him once. Peter betrayed him three times. Amen. And yet, when you look at what happened 50 days after his greatest failure, Peter is unlocking heaven to open the floodgates of the Holy Spirit to fall upon mankind in Acts chapter 2. It's Peter that preached the message on the day of Pentecost that started a revival then that continues to this very day. Amen. God uses fallen people. God tells us we have this treasure. Oh, did you hear what he called it? Treasure in earthen vessels. I need somebody to say, I've got treasure. Mackenzie said it a while ago. We don't value the presence of the glory of God nearly as much as we should because we're in it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I'm reminded of the sons of Obed-Edom and one of them puts his hand out to steady the ark because he had been around it for three months and it had gotten to be commonplace to him. But listen, it's treasure. And you need to never, never forget that. And every day you ought to wake up and say, I've got treasure inside. I've got treasure inside. I have... He who is the most valuable gift heaven has ever offered the world living with inside of me. Amen. Number seven, to keep recovery from failing and to keep it on track. Let God use you to help someone else get through their struggle. If you want to really deal with temptation, stop focusing on you. Because temptation is what I'm wanting. Find somebody else and get your eyes no longer focused on you, but on helping them. Amen. Because really what an addiction is, it's an absorption, an absorption in self. It's a, a focus on self. It's an, it's an egocentristic focus that is so self-destructive. And when it's you that you're looking at all the time, you don't see everything around you. I will never forget the old Bruce Lee movie. How many of y'all remember Enter the Dragon from many years ago? It's got this starting line where Bruce Lee is teaching this young student. And he says, you see the moon? and the uh, No, wait. He points his, how does it go? Points his finger and, and the kid's looking at his finger and Bruce Lee slaps him and says, if you focus on the finger, you miss all of the moon in its glory. You're focusing on the finger when you focus on yourself. You're focusing on the smallest part of who humanity is. To get your recovery on track, help somebody else. This is what Jesus told Peter, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Use what happened to you to help them get strong. You're not the only one involved in a struggle. They need to know what you learned in the middle of this process. Amen. Jesus not only knew that Peter would fail, he knew that he would recover. And he knew that he would use his experience to be a blessing. Here's what you don't do when you mess up in life. Don't stay home. Oh, come on, help me out right now devil will beat you down with condemnation where you will not feel like going to church because he knows what will happen if you do. He'll tell you to sit on the back row, not participate. Listen, that's not the way it works. God told the devil, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. 
Even the devil is supposed to be a worshiper. Got himself in trouble when he stopped worshiping because when you stop worshiping God, you won't worship for yourself. Go think about that. That'll preach, and I'm going to deal with it at another time. I think of Michael Phelps, the most winning athlete in Olympic history. Count him, 23 gold medals on his chest. 23. He had won 18 gold medals, and afterward he went into a downward spiral. He thought he had peaked. Drugs, parties, and other offenses left him crashed and burning. He thought literally about committing suicide. Remember what I told you about the woodlands? That's what happens when you lean your ladder against the wall of materialism or worldly fame. It's never going to be satisfying. You're going to get up there and go, (gasps) (sighs) 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 because it's not what it's cracked up to be. On the other hand, does God want us to be successful? You better know it. But when you're successful in God and he's your source, then he gets the credit for it. Amen. And that's the most fulfilling experience you will ever have in life. Michael Phelps didn't know that. He crashed and burned, wanted to commit suicide. But he was friends with a guy whose name I know you football fans will recognize. His friend's name was Ray Lewis, the NFL star. Remember Ray? Ray was raised in a broken home and had his own issues. He had experienced all kinds of problems in his own life. He had abandonment issues. He came from a broken home. As a child, his mom would tell him, your dad called, and he's going to pick you up today. And she'd fix him a little lunch in a paper bag, and he'd sit on the curb from morning until evening waiting for a dad that didn't show up. He got into all kind of trouble, including drug offenses and a fight that resulted in him in a nightclub being convicted on an obstruction to murder charge. He went to prison. In prison, he got a copy of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, and gave his heart to God. Ray was friends with Michael Phelps, and he gave him a copy of The Purpose Driven Life. And then he helped him get in a rehab center in Phoenix, Arizona. And Michael turned his life around, went back to the next Olympics, won five more Olympic gold medals for a total of 23 gold medals and 28 medals, Olympic medals total. Probably no one else will ever match that record. Michael credits his turnaround to three things. Number one, God. Number two, his friend, Ray Lewis. And number three, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. God has a purpose for your life. Amen. God has a purpose for your life. And I can tell you as I close in helping people recover, you don't focus just on the problem. You focus on the future. You focus on what God wants to do with a person. Because when they are so messed up and self-focused that all they can see now is their own need and they give in to that, their own appetite, and then they have to deal with the humiliation of it afterward. The condemnation, the guilt, the shame. They're not in no condition to, to recover or get back on their feet. And you have to gently pick their head up and say, look at the future, don't look at the past. I've often done this, but do this right now. Get your steering wheel out, okay? We're driving, okay? You're driving. Everybody driving? Okay, keep your eye on the road. Now do this. You know what you just did? You ran into the person in front of you. Because when you look at the past, you cannot go into your future. Amen. 
When you're a captive of the past, you will not possess your future. Amen. The final thing that I want to say in this passage is that you need to realize, and I've emphasized this each week, that discipline never works long term. Let God help you trade a bad addiction for one that he can use to make your life more fulfilling. You see, Peter never stopped being Peter. He was Peter till the day he died. Peter, I don't know his home life, but it's apparent something was going on because he was easily influenced by what he thought was what other people believed about him. And so Peter is in Antioch with Paul and they're fellowshipping with the Gentiles and eating pork barbecue sandwiches and the whole business. And, and some Gentile and some Jewish people show up from Jerusalem, Jewish believers. And right away, Peter doesn't want to hang out with Gentiles anymore. And he won't eat anything unless it's kosher. And Paul gets right in his face and rebukes him before everybody And we know that Peter was influenced by the opinion of others. That's why he denied Christ around that fire. Amen. Somebody said, you were with him. No, not me, not me. Servant girl, you were with him. Blankety blank blank was not either. You will always be who you are. I close with a story. I've told it before. Steve, did you ever know Wild Bill Cisco? Amen. Bill Cisco was a great friend of mine. I don't even know if he's still living. And we came from a similar background. I asked Pastor Donnie about him. I think Donnie probably knew him. But his family came from the old country and settled in America. And by old country, I mean Europe. And he had a granddad that loved <laughs> to drink. And he was a farmer and he raised pigs. And one day he went to bring a young shoat to the market. That's a small pig, a young pig. And so he put him, you guys probably don't even know what a gunny sack is, do you? Some of you don't. Grass sack. I bet some of you do. Put him in that gunny sack, put him over his shoulder, and on the way past a bar. And there was not a bar he could walk by without turning in. So he went in and set that grass sack down with that pig in it and started drinking. And he got three sheets to the wind. And after a while, he's really, you know, he's really lit up. He doesn't see the neighborhood kids that know his routine come in, open the sack, take the pig out, and put a dog in. So when he gets done drinking, he picks up the sack and staggers out the door, goes to the market, and gets there. And he said, I got a pig for sale. And they said, well, let's see it. So he opens it up and there's this dog. And he just stands there reeling, looking at that dog, bleary eyed. And he finally just said, you be who you are. Be who you are. And do you know that's who you're going to be? You're going to be who you are. God made every one of us to be unique and different, but there's giftings inside of you. There's treasure inside of you. There's favor that God wants to place upon you. There's an anointing. Amen. And I'm done. So how do you live strong? Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah, make no provision for indulging the flesh. Stop giving in. Don't drive by that certain place. You delete that email. Get rid of that phone number. Block that number. Delete WhatsApp. Amen. 
Put a stop to thinking about the evil cravings of your physical nature to gratify its desires and lust. And instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves. Now, you've heard me say this before, but an, an A380 is a big airplane. It's the biggest in the commercial plane in the world right now. It carries passengers. It can carry up to 700 passengers. KLM doesn't use them, but Air France does, and some of the others do. And, and those are monstrous planes. We've got one that flies in Lufthansa every day into uh, uh, George Bush International. Up to 700 passengers, depending upon the seating configuration. Or if you want to carry cargo, which some of them do, it could carry, get this, a Mercedes G-Wagon. You know how big that is? It's heavy. It can carry 104 of them. 104 of them. Now, I love a Mercedes. I don't need a car every year. The one I've got is a 2009. It's got 200 and I think 12 or 13,000 miles on it. I drive them to the wheels fall off. Amen. And church even owns that one. And so I don't have to have a car every, every you know, year. I like to drive a Mercedes because they do last longer for me. That's been my experience. For me, it's a better investment. But you can have your own opinion too. They're not just status symbols. But here's what I want to tell you. I have never seen the Mercedes yet that can fly. But you put one in an A380 and I believe I can fly. You can, 104 of them can fly. When you are in Christ, you can do things you cannot do at any other time. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. I'm done. How do you live strong? Ephesians 6, finally, brethren. See that? Finally. In other words, this is my last word on the matter. This is all I'm going to say about this because you get this one down right. It'll fix it. This sums up my advice. He says, finally, brethren, number two, be strong in, say it, in the Lord. Build up your strength in God. Amen. And number three, and in the power of his might, your flesh will never be able to be strong enough to please God. But with him inside of you and you inside of him and his word hidden in your heart and you being filled with the Holy Spirit and developing a worship life, a devotional life and walking in the manifest presence of God. Hello, somebody. Practicing the presence of the Lord daily. You can be strong in him and in the presence of his might. And finally, or the power of his might, and finally put on the whole. Everybody say whole, whole armor of God. That's a message for another day. Stand with me.